I've known Michelle Attias for several years now, having first met her at a breakfast networking meeting, and we've kept in touch ever since. Michelle was born in Gibraltar, lived in Israel for a while, but eventually settled in London. She qualified as therapist and clinical supervisor in mental health services, with responsibility for some of the poorest and abused children in London, as well as treating depressed, anxious, addicted and bereaved clients. After undergoing significant change in her own personal life, she reinvented herself and became a certified coach with a wide range of clients from lawyers, bankers, to entrepreneurs and business leaders. As well as being a mum of two, she also finds time for public speaking, writing articles for online blogs, and more recently published her first book, Look Inside, Stop Seeking, Start Living. Michelle and I share a passion for personal growth, empowerment and lifelong learning. And in this conversation, we not only discuss Michelle's own transition from working in the city to coaching, but also take a deep dive into her wonderful book to see what are some of the key issues holding us back today and how we can overcome them. I'm Steve Lazarus, and this is Your London Legacy. Okay, so I'm delighted to say I'm here today with Michelle Atias, or Atias, correct me because you've got a Spanish accent, is I believe. A little bit still left over, actually. A little bit left over. Okay, so with Michelle Atias, who is well known to me, a friend of mine from several years ago. We've known each other for a number of years, going back to when we were both doing a, num- a lot of networking for our respective businesses. But we've kept in touch. I'm pleased to say we've kept in touch over, over the years, which is really good. And we're sitting in your, would you say your consulting rooms? My consulting room, stroke conservatory, stroke writing space, stroke, it's it's just, I love being in this space. It's a beautiful space, a large, white, bright, as you say, conservatory, glass all around and lovely and white and very relaxing and peaceful. And it's a very warm day here today in uh, Northwest London. So Michelle, I want to talk to you amongst other things about your, your book that you've recently released but perhaps a little by way of introduction, you were originally, I think, a therapist working in the mental health sector, uh, in charge, I believe, of a number of therapists as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes, and absolutely. Then you moved over to the world of coaching. So a number of things I want to talk about here. I want to talk about your role in your life and in, in therapy. Uh, you weren't in therapy, but working as a therapist and how you made the transition and what, what the life changes for you that made you or enticed you over to work as a as a, um, a coach you're now an author as well you're a writer or a speaker you're a mum uh, so you've got a, a lot on your plate so I want to just go through a little bit about your background and how you became where you, you know got to where you are today so perhaps you can just fill us in on on, on that first of all yeah absolutely so I I started off working in in therapy many, many years ago. I was probably about uh, around 15 years ago. I wanted to get involved in the personal development world. Um, I had been in corporate banking before that, and I just could not connect to that type of work. However prestigious it was, it just wasn't for me. So what, just what made you think you wanted to do corporate banking in the first place? I came to London when I was about 21. So I'm from Gibraltar. I lived in Israel for three years. I came to live in London initially, and for some reason, I ended up in finance sector and in corporate banking. And I was working in a company in the city. And what was really interesting was that it was a great uh, company. I speak three languages. So that was one of the reasons why um, they wanted me in the company working with them. I hated finance. I hated that whole sector. But I absolutely loved speaking to people. And I noticed that 
I was always a person that people came to with problems. In fact, I was one of the youngest in the bank. I was probably in my early 20s. And I used to spend sort of half a day, you know, filing the company uh, paperwork. And as people used to pass by that room, they used to stop off and say, you know, and start sort of talking to me about their problems. And I just loved it. Why Why do you think? You think that because you had like an open I just had a, it beca- way with you? And- Probably th- that filing room became renamed Michelle's therapy room. Now, I wasn't even a therapist then. I had no idea I would ever become part of the personal development world. But already there was that natural feeling that I just wanted to hear people, listen, find them a better solution without knowing. And you knowing. didn't feel overwhelmed at all taking on other people's no, problems I loved it. and burdens? Yeah. I loved it. I absolutely loved it. And, and yeah. What sort of age were you when you started to? Early 20s. Early 20s. And I did some work for the uh, sort of Jewish Samaritans for Miyad. I used to be, I used to do some work there in the evenings as a volunteer. So there was something that was pulling me, but I, but to actually step into becoming a psychotherapist was a whole different ball game. That was something I, I, I didn't, I didn't imagine until I started to get into it, and I really loved it, and I really loved the academic aspect of it, the learning about different therapies and theories, and being able to help my clients once I qualified was amazing. So it was a very fulfilling, meaningful type of work, and I felt amazing in a way that I didn't when I was in a in a very different type of sector working. So how long were you in banking for before you realized that you'd had enough? Banking and finance, I was there for a good few years, for a good few years. And I only left because I only embarked in the personal development world because I was currently going through a divorce. It was a very, very difficult time. My kids were real babies. I was here, you know, it's not like I grew up in London. You know, it's not like I had my parents here. It it was tough. And I, I needed something to help me overcome my feelings about being divorced, especially in the community. And I started going to personal development workshops. And as I did so, I found myself helping others who were also going through a difficult time. And I I think I facilitated somebody. uh, We were getting into partners um, when we were doing one of these exercises in one of these personal development workshops. And the guy that I was facilitating turned around and said to me, you need to become a therapist. Now, I had no idea at the time that that's, uh, he just said that to me and something connected so deeply that I, I looked into a course and I, that's where I started and, and everything rolled on from there. I quit my banking job. I called a social services uh, department and asked them if I could go work there. And if they had any any vacancies available, they said, well, actually, funnily enough, somebody just left today. <laughs> um, why don't you come have an interview with us? And um, it was a time when we didn't even have internet, really. And I went and I was interviewed and I started working for the social services and I loved working with people. But I noticed, and this is what we were talking before about getting your hands dirty while you're in action, is that... I noticed that I loved working with people, but in that social services department, it was working with elderly people, and I really did not want to work with elderly people. I found it actually quite quite draining, and I thought, well, I'd love to work with people, but not elderly. I'm gonna, I, I'd rather work with adults or maybe even kids. So then I, I embarked on a on a on a course on a on actually making this a professional vocation. 
so that was still within the social services sector. And then you started to work with children who had sort of mental health issues or what sort of yeah. problems were you, were, they, were you coming across? No, so that's what happened. So I quit the social services after a few years because I wanted to immerse myself in study. And what I did instead was I ran a, chari- a cancer charity from home, Camp Simcha. I ran it from home. In, so I could sort of have an earning capacity um, whilst I was learning and I was in, in university and I began to learn therapy, psychotherapy. And as I did so, I had to do clinical hours. And so I chose this organization called The Place to Be, where I did my clinical hours with them. And when I finished my course, they called me and they said, why don't you come work with us as our project manager with within therapy services? So I did. And I ended up working there for about five years, uh, clinically supervising other therapists and working with children, um, which really, if you think about it, it's like a 20-minute drive from here in the area of Brent. Children who were experiencing huge amounts of uh, abuse, both physically, uh, emotionally, psychologically. I was working with refugee kids, their families, some kids who were in refuges, also just working with unbelievably needy issues, poverty. Some of those kids, their only meal of the day was the meal they had at school. And they clung on to my services like a lifeline. And I, I literally... I left there many years ago now, and I still think about those kids. And nothing seems to have changed. I mean, even today in the news, we had the issue with uh, Trump and the, yes, the, yes. The, the kids being separated from their parents, and how I mean, being almost kept in cages. It would seem Absolutely. and being left crying. And in in the UK today, we had all the kids who go to school without a meal, and the and the school teachers have to take you know food in and bars of soap and towels and things for them. Unbelievable! To have a, and it's still going on today. It's, it's unbelievable! Quite unbelievable! I could not get over how these kids were coming. Huge neediness, huge poverty. Often they didn't have a lot of clothes. Sometimes they had to wake their mothers up in the morning. Or their fathers because they were alcoholics and they were just completely uh, fast asleep and had to iron their school uniforms. They were really young kids and a lot of child protection issues, a lot of self-harming. So a lot of autistic spectrum disorders as well. So I, I really had a huge spectrum and I loved I absolutely loved working with them. I want to ask you something about self, self-harming, and that, just because you've mentioned it. When did self-harming become, popular is not the right word, but common, shall we say, because growing up as a kid, as I did, no, never heard of self-harming. Is this something which kids are, are repeating behavior, learn behavior from what they've seen from, I don't know, parents and what's on telly? Or is this something that's been kept quiet for many years and just swept under the carpet nobody in the public really knew about? I think maybe it's been kept quiet and kept under the carpet. It always might have existed, but it was not allowed to be spoken about. And... I remember working with kids in primary school who were self-harming and it was because they found the only way they could release it, the anger, the upset, they weren't being heard at home. They had a huge trauma at home. Was The only way they could do it was, was by cutting, by feet. Because when you cut, you feel. You feel something. And sometimes when your feelings have been numbed, you just want to feel. And that's what I felt was a lot of what was going on with these kids. And, and so it might have occurred during our day when we were younger, but it was never talked about. Like, you know, autistic spectrum disorders were also not really talked about. You were just told you were stupid or you were useless or 
But whereas now it's taken seriously, it's looked at, there's help, there's support. So I think it's just, it's just more visible now, more acceptable to talk about it. And there's more help for it. And I guess thinking about it, I mean, some religions practice, you know, historically, some of the more peripheral aspects of some religions I don't know what they call it, flagellation, I guess, yes, when they, they whip yes. themselves so they bleed and, you Absolutely. know, you know bloodletting. So I suppose there is some historical, you know, perception to it as well. But it, it just struck me today because I'm in and around mental health charity mm. and my wife is yes. involved with special needs as well. And you just hear more and more of, you know, self-harm, which you never, never did or certainly wasn't aware of as a kid growing up. You do, but you also have issues now that you didn't have when we were growing up. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, you know, the texting, the WhatsApp, the 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 unbelievable expectations of who we need to become. We we didn't have that. We don't even know what our kids are dealing with nowadays because we never had that. Yeah, that's very true. And we'll, we'll dig into that a bit when, yeah. we, when we come into your book because you, you cover off some of those issues and some solutions as well for some of those issues as well. So... You're working with children as a therapist and helping, you know, refugees and children in dire, dire circumstances. Yeah. At what point did you then move on or transition over to become more of a coach than a, than a therapist? And what made you or decided you to make that? Yeah, I, I decided I wanted to set up my own clinic. But I left this organization after five years. And I absolutely love them. But I decided I did. I wanted to work with adults more. I was curious more about adults. When I think back... I think that the reason why I focused on children, because it was something about my own child self that I hadn't quite maybe processed. And you'll probably see at the beginning of the book, my first chapter is about an incident I had with my teacher. I think that was part of my childhood that I wanted. I had an amazing childhood, but I think that educationally speaking, it was tough. And I always tough for me personally. And I think I wanted to go back into the into, into the world of children and give them an ear and give them a, a place to be heard. That's because you felt at, because I think you went to a convent school. I went to a uh, secondary school was a convent yeah, school. Well, the first school wasn't. And strangely, my sister also did. So a, a Jewish upbringing, but in a convent school, yeah. exactly the same as my sister. Yeah. yeah. And obviously a, a very, you go through, you know, there's a religious school from a, from yes. a Catholic point of view. But also, they're quite strict, aren't they? Disciplinarians and yeah, you know, have yeah, certain yeah. expectations. And I think they put you down at school, didn't they? Or one, one... Well, no. For me, the putting down was in primary school. In primary school. In okay. primary school. The high school was, was where I really blossomed. The primary school was where I really was put down. And, I, and, I, and interestingly enough, I, I've never really worked with teens because, and when I think back now, teenagehood was never a part of my life I needed to process. I had an amazing teenage years. I really did. Whereas the the childhood, although my family, in terms of family, was amazing, I think in terms of my childhood and school was an issue for me personally, and especially in the early years. And I think that's who I ended up working with was kids. And I think once I organically processed that, I had maybe no more need to, to make kids feel heard. I just moved on to adulthood. And I started working with adults and I had my own clinic in Northwest London and, and it was great. I was having my own private clients and uh, I was taking on my own private supervisees. So I was, I was also supervising therapists um, and I loved doing that. And then I went through another difficult time in my life. Went through a, a pretty, I think it was, it actually beats the first time. <laughs> it was really, really tough. And I remember 
an auntie turning around and saying to me, well, surely you should be able to navigate this. I mean, you have been part of the mental health world for so many years. I mean, you're a therapist. And I remember looking at her and thinking, actually, no, therapy isn't helping at all. In fact, the whole methodology isn't really helping me to navigate this these issues. And um, I began to get curious about coaching, about being more creative in a session, having more fun in a session. I mean, therapy was serious. So what is the difference? What are the subtle differences between therapy and, and coaching? The thing with therapy is on one level, it is you've got registration, you've got an accreditation, you've got a, an awarding body, you've got a lot of rules and regulations of how you're supposed to do it. So you have to be under some sort of awarding body, uh, which limits you quite a bit. But also therapy is going to the past to heal that broken, fragmented self. With coaching, you are looking at where you are now and where you want to be. And yes, you will sometimes have to acknowledge there was a past and that it isn't, it might not be serving you right now. But the way I work with my clients, every co coach works differently. The, work, the way I work with my clients, and this is what shifted my client work so substantially, was that I now see them as healthy, having well-being, uh, having everything they need already. And I keep pointing to that place all the time, whereas previously as a therapist, I kept trying to diagnose, uh, speaking to that fragmented self as if they had some sort of uh, kind of mental disease that I needed to kind of find. Like there's something wrong with you. And when you speak to people from that place, first of all, they stay with you for years. I mean, I used to have clients with me for a long time. And once you are in a coaching relationship and you already speak to them that there's something so right with you and there's nothing wrong with you, you just haven't seen it yet. People get well so quickly. It means that your clients don't last for very long because once they know they have everything they need, they're good to go. So bad from a business point of view. Bad but, from but, a business. <laughs> but, but great for a client recommendation because if their problems are solved. Yeah. I, and, and that's how I build my business. Sure. I don't do a lot of marketing. It's mainly through referrals. Yeah. So you've touched on the differences between the two. So just looking back at your transition, you've made a load of changes yourself, haven't you? I mean, not only a, a toughish upbringing, I guess, you come from different cultural backgrounds, from Gibraltar and Israel and into London, from a banking sector, then you've left banking, you've gone into therapists. Yeah. You've made a lot of changes yourself. So you've been through a, a hell of a lot. And do you think this has sort of formed the way you now help your clients yourself? You call them clients? Definitely, definitely, definitely. I call them clients and I help them. And here's why, because one of the most incredible things about, about this is that, for example, when I was a therapist, I was the expert. My client was the one that had something wrong with them. So there was always an imbalance. The way I work with my clients is I'm not perfect. I've had quite a background and it's okay for you to tell me that you're not perfect. Because remember that my therapy clients are very different to my clients now. Some of them are business clients, some of them are executives, some of them are managers. They have quite a front up hold. So to be able to break down those defenses, I need to make my clients feel very safe, that they can be who they need to be with me. And that only happens if I can really connect to my own vulnerability, my own difficult times, my own times that I've completely messed up because it allows them to do so too. And, and that's where the magic happens when they begin to peel those layers and be completely real with me. We've touched on so many different elements there, which you've um, written about in your book, 
which I think was published earlier this year, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, published a couple of months ago. So your book called Look Inside, and the subtitle, Stop Seeking, Start Living. I mean, for a start, I, I just love that title, <laughs> yeah. um, because it, it just resonates with me totally. Yeah. Uh, and a bit like you, I'm one of these people who've read and read and loves reading all books on personal development, on sociology and psychology, and how we can improve ourselves, and always looking for the extra little 1% of self-improvement and self-awareness. And what I loved about your book, Look Inside, well, were a number of things. But firstly, is because today's attention span, and mine particularly, is, is that, that of a goldfish. So you, your chapters, you've got, I don't know, what, 30-odd chapters, I think, in here. Maybe maybe less, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, but they're all shortish. They're, they're, none of them are terribly long. And they're broken down into um, four sections. Yeah. Which sort of takes you on a bit of a journey yourself, you know, from what you call reaching out, which is finding people to to have good people around you and also reaching out to other people to to be, a, if you like, a community-minded person. Um, part two is all about inner strength, finding your inner resilience and your, and your, your, your inner voice. Um, part three, change. Now, I want, I want to dive in on part three because to me that was the bit, I think, sort of, to me that's like the centre of it all. It's the centre of your book, but I, I, I don't know if there's a beginning, a middle and end of your book. There is, there is in page numbers, but I don't know if there is on a personal journey. Yes, a, yes. In, your, in this section called Change Direction, you've got a, a, a quote here, a phrase that you say a lot of clients come into you and the first thing they say to you is, I don't know what to do. Yes. Oh, yeah, and, I remember and that I, chapter. I, I, yeah, and I just find that is just so true because we, we go through life and like we were talking off mic earlier, you know, I was fortunate enough to decide I wanted to make a change. But that doesn't mean I, I you know, I, so I was lived the life of an insurance loss assessor for, for 28 odd 30 years and it was only when I was flat on my back for two weeks in hospital last week I was fortunate enough to turn that misfortune into you know something positive I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis but I decided there was something else I wanted to do something that I was passionate about but not everybody knows what that passion is or what it is that they want to do or they think you know maybe what I'm doing is wrong and it doesn't have to be in their 30s or 40s or 50s it can be at any time of their life why is it today even more so than I think ever before. People are uncertain about themselves, about what they're doing, about their journey in life. What, what is it that's wrong here? I think that there's an expectation. There's always a, I'll be happy when. So you finish primary school and then it's a high school. Now finish a high school, then it's the uh, university. Once you get university, you'll get a job and then you'll be happy. Then you'll feel okay. And people go through life like that, but they end up in their 40s or 50s they wake up one morning and they think, well, listen, I've got the house, the the marriage, the kids, the job, but I'm not happy. I don't have any meaning or I don't, I don't know, something's not connecting. And, and, and I think there's always an expectation that the next stage is like we're always running to the next stage, but we're not always fully present to what each stage brings. And I think that's that's what happens and it happens across the board. It's like, we need to know what we need to do right now. Well, sometimes like what happened to you, you know, you were laid up in bed without able to being able to move and the insight came to you then. For me, the insight came to me in the middle of the Moroccan mountains, which said, Michelle, you need to start publishing what you write. Now, I had no idea that was going to happen, even though I was trying to break my head when I was in London thinking, okay, what direction am I going to take this? So, the, so you're talking about the process of deciding you wanted to write, write your book and put, and, write, and, write and, full and, and, stop. and commit, yeah, commit your thoughts and ideas to, to writing yeah, and get published. published. Yeah, become published. more visible, yeah. become, do something that actually, how, how fun would that be to do? Yeah. So 
modern day man and woman looking for external validation of things in possessions in neediness in everything but they're missing the one key element here i mean i've worked with i I recently worked with a very successful lawyer from um from the u.s and she had everything but the one thing she didn't have is a connection to self she'd been defined by her career her profession how many multiple diplomas and degrees she could she could line up how many high profile clients she could get but she was lonely she had no connection to self. And I think one of the things that brought her to our sessions was that, was that she began to feel a connection to her soul. She ended up starting to do voluntary work, God knows where, because in, in, a, in a cause that really mattered to her, because that's what brought her a bit of meaning, or brought her, her back to her, brought her back to that self that was before she needed to start being defined by this profession, this, this, external self and we have that self when we're children and I talk about that at the book when we were children we weren't scared about getting messy trying new things and we weren't defined by anything really until we had this thought that told us you can't be okay until you toe the line until you become a good girl or good boy and that's what we define and then we start becoming defined by externals validation you know in this point in time, it might be how many likes do I get on LinkedIn or Facebook? So I'm looking for those likes, those validation has to come in that sort of level. And that's what we look at, but we forget about who we are underneath that. So this idea of self, I mean, it means different things to different people. And some people can think it's a bit sort of woo-woo, you know, whether it's spiritual or new age, but what, what, what is self? When you're talking to a client, what what is, is that? Just stripping you back to taking off all the expectations from others and yourself, and going back to almost like childhood sort of psyche, if you like. Sometimes with each client, it's different. So I always like to tailor make the sessions towards the client and what they need from me. But some clients, for example, have a story. Like I had a client who had a story that they could never in, that they could never engage in creative pursuits because when they were a child they heard their mum say sort of make a face when somebody was sharing with them that they were an artist so what this client did was just take on more diploma more information uh, do more courses but she wasn't happy because actually what really fired her up and what she loved was drama doing art writing teaching writing but she was Shame, she felt ashamed to share that with her family. She felt ashamed to really step and own that. And that's really what we're trying to strip back is those stories, those expectations, all those things you were told you had to become and strip right back into actually, who am I? What do I really love to do? What would make me happy? And what most people really yearn for actually is, is, is peace, calm, uh, joy. Is that why you say in the book that people come to you and they say they don't know what to do or what should I do and they say they almost feel cheated yes what do you do cheated out of what they could have been or felt they should have been by society by parental boundaries all those sort of things and we all get stuck into that we all do I me included you know I had a certain vision of who I needed to to become as an adult and what being successful meant and in my, in my childhood, and again, I had a wonderful childhood, a fantastic family. But for me, my definition of that sort of only seemed to include perhaps marriage, kids, maybe getting a part-time job somewhere. That's all I believed 
I would be able to become. And, and that was my own interpretation of it until I began to step out of that and, and start to create well, what, how does Michelle want to live her life, her best self? What kind of legacy do I want to leave behind? And part of that is turning all these articles that I write weekly into books. And I'm already halfway through my second one because it's effortless for me. I love writing. I love sharing stories and I do it through stories. I don't do it like maybe other personal development coaches no, That's the other do thing it. we should have said about, about your book, which was so yeah. good and made it so easy to read and inspiring, was that you intersperse it with personal stories, which we can all relate to. They're your stories. They're, they're, they're true to you, but everyone can relate to them. Yes. So going back, if you like, to the beginning of the book, because I, I thought that was a really good... Talking to yourself as someone who was working in the banking sector, so you're now telling your younger self today, You'll have plenty of clients who will be stuck in banking, I would imagine, or law offices or other professions or doing something they, they truly hate. And they come to you with that question, I don't know what to do. They're stuck doing what they do. What is the advice you can give them? How, how can they, what is the technique? Because it's easy, it's quite easy to say, to sit here, for us to sit here, well, for me to pontificate and say, well, just, just change your life, you know, because when I went to a Tony Robbins uh, gig a few years ago, I don't know if you've ever been to, I, I went to as well. You're one of his, and one <laughs> of the things, one of the things he says is you can change your, you can change your life. You can change your thoughts. And then he clicks his fingers and he says in a heartbeat and he gets everyone to repeat it and click their fingers. Yeah. Well, you can change, you can change it momentarily, but it's the prospect of overcoming the fear of making change and then actually taking action on that. Absolutely. And people are scared of change. Mm. I don't ever mention the word change with my clients. They're, they're very scared of change, uncertainty, and the unknown. So on some level, I want them to sit there a little bit because I think it's really healthy for them to. But on another level, I want to bring other elements so that they can we can hook onto a bit of certainty. So I never really mention change. Change happens organically. So, and, and, through thought, like what you were talking about, Tony Robbins, people can change in a heartbeat. I know my life was changed in a heartbeat because of insight. When you transfer a thought from intellectually knowing it to knowing it here, there's a paradigm shift where nothing ever looks the same again. And that's what I really aim with my clients. I don't necessarily talk to them about it, but in our conversations, something shifts. And that is, can be a truly emotional moment, isn't it? When that person- yeah truly understands wow you know that's oh my that's God. what i really well, now i really believe what i want now i know what that now that i know that's the direction i want to take my life in it really is powerful but it's also very effortless so i don't need to give them a 10 step plan five ways to do this or six weeks to do that i, I don't need to the more they understand that they are living in a thought created reality the more they understand that they're living through a story that they kind of invented 20 years ago that's no longer serving them. When they really get that, not intellectually, but really emotionally, they come back to me the following week and they say, I don't know what's happened to me, but I used to be really stressed, but I'm kind of not. Or the way I used to talk to my team is now kind of different. And people are saying, why are you so different? They, it's, it's an effortless shift. It happens in, it's, it's like the back office is working it's like the computer's updating, but they're sort of, so nothing externally looks different, but everything internally has mm. changed. Mm. It's very subtle. You talk about, in the early part of your book, about your inner superhero and getting inspiration. And you, you, you talk about an experience you had on a train, I think, once where, and I saw something not dissimilar, actually, the other week in um, 
in a museum in, in London where somebody falls ill. And this, in your case, it was, I think, on London Transport. Yes, on the underground, And just, I, think, I don't know if they collapsed or they just, they looked ill. And they, nobody, they nobody, nobody did, a, did a thing. Because people are too busy. They're too busy trying to connect through playing um, all those games on their phones, connecting through buying more stuff on Amazon. But what they're missing is what's in front of them, which is really what they're looking for. Is that actually people are looking for connection, but they're, lo- they're trying to find it through a phone rather than through an actual interaction. And I'm always passionate about talking about things. You know, when I set off to the city and... There's always something that happens on London transport or there's always a homeless person I'll sit down and I'll talk to because I love doing that. And I had to include that in my book because I feel connected to that. Hmm. So what's the significance of that? Is that is that bringing out the good side of yourself, the, the caring it's side of yourself? That. It's more than that. I, th- I think when I see homeless people and I see people that are needy and are being ignored, something connects inside me on those times when I felt like that too, you know, when I was divorced and, and I was part of the community and and didn't quite fit in. And at, at a certain time in our lives a few years ago, and that, that was the second point that I went through a difficult time, we really didn't have where to live. You know, we really didn't, myself and my daughters. And I remember how scary that was. And yes, I relied on family members and, and thank God, and then we've ended up here. But I remember having nothing to cling on to anymore, not a nothing, nothing that I could be defined by. And how scary, but how freeing that was. It's like your worst nightmare come true, you survive it. And it's like tremendously freeing at the same time. But I'm always connected to those that are ignored, to those that people push to one side. I've always been. This goes back to your helping children who were yeah, abused yeah, yeah. And in a bad yeah, way yeah I, I like people to be heard I don't yeah. like people to be ignored because I don't like to be ignored either. no it's, it's interesting because we all walk past you know homeless people or mentally ill people and I'd say 99.9% of the population probably just walk past yes and, and I guess the majority of the people who walk past really in their soul would like to stop and do something, but they feel embarrassed, ashamed, haven't got the time, you know, maybe haven't got enough change. I don't know, but it's not change that people want necessarily. You know, if you see someone who's homeless, they probably just want a chat most of the time to feel worthy of your time. Yes, but I think it goes one step further than that. I think when you look at a homeless person in the eye, what you're looking at is any person's worst scenario. That's why people work so hard. But the, the, at the end of all those fears it's like i'm gonna end up homeless so people don't really want to stare at their biggest fear in the face and it's interesting because i was talking to a charity a couple of weeks ago that actually i I contacted through linkedin because i was quite connected to the work that they do and what they're doing is they're trying to get these homeless people off the streets and bring them into entrepreneurship because they were saying and absolutely right they have all the tool, tools to be entrepreneurs because they have to survive day to day. They have to find some type of, they have to be in a resourceful to survive on a daily basis. Yeah, and it's interesting you make that point because I interviewed for the podcast a couple of weeks ago, a chap called yes, Phil, uh, Phil Ryan, who was one of the early uh, founders, co-founders of The Big Issue. And when I said to him, oh, um, you know, wonderful charity, he picked me up immediately, said, we're not, it's not a charity, it's a social enterprise. And the whole idea is not to give handouts to homeless, but it's to enhance their ability and raise them up so they can do things for themselves. Absolutely. And he says they do it all the time. He says they're 
got more than enough capability and skills, but they just need a leg up and you know some tools with it in which to to fulfill their yeah yeah their yeah. Life. So they were t- so this organization is trying to get corporate businesses involved in bringing mentors in to like mentor uh, some of the homeless people and get them into entrepreneurship. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. I, I totally wanted to get involved in that. And um, yeah, so so that seems to be happening. So yeah, so I think it's staring your worst nightmare in the face. So reaching out and helping others, so it's thinking outside of yourself is, is a good tactic for helping yourself along your life journey. But you also talk about having good people around you as well. And um, there is this expression, I don't know, you're the average of the, the, the five people you, you most associate yourself with. And I think that that, that is certainly true. I don't know the, the numbers are, are precise, but certainly if you put good people around you, it's going to rub off, rub off on you. If you watch, let's put it bluntly, crap on television, you know, you, you're going to have a mush, mush for, a, for a brain. Definitely, definitely, <laughs> definitely. So how do people do that? Because they've got to reach out to people oftentimes who are, who they perceive to be superior, more knowledgeable. Is there a a good way, an easy way to? I think that, you know, if people want to up level or optimize their life and they're ready to integrate different friendships, so you don't have to dump the friendships that you have already, but you might want to integrate different type of friendships into your life. Going to personal development events, going to talks. There are so many meetups in the city um, I give talks in the city all the time and I see in the audience so many different types of people that end up meeting each other at the talks and then go on to make friendships and sometimes create accountability partners out of it. You know, it just creates a different different conversation, a different mindset, a different dialogue, takes you out of the mundane, what, your normal everyday life and, and it, it just creates new possibilities. Absolutely. I mean, for me, it's been amazing when I've done that. Yeah. I think it can start with something as simple as what you read and what, yes. what, what you focus your attention on, you know, from whether you want to spend all your time watching or listening to negative news or you want to read something, something inspiring. I mean, there's so many options nowadays. And how you start your day as well. And that's something I think I talked about in the book is starting the day with more intention. Like, what do I want to create today? You know, what do I want to bring more into my life today? Being more intentional and being more conscious rather than leading this busy, unconscious life can be a very simple tweak that can be super powerful. You also talk in the book about facing fear head on. Now, now fear is one of those things that can absolutely, totally drain, drain a person and can make their lives a misery and make them a nervous wreck. And there's many different forms of fear. You know, there's there's fear of being, you know, I might succeed at this. Um, I think it's sometimes called the imposter syndrome. You know, I'm not, I'm, you know, who am I to say I, I, I can do this? There's this fear of, probably the biggest one is fear of failure and, and being shunned and rejected for getting it hopelessly wrong. So, you know, overcoming fear is, is an awful paralyzing thing. How, how does one overcome that? You just understand that fear comes from feeling as obviously a, a sense of fear, but it's always powered by thought. So fear is not, fearful feelings are not coming out in, in a vacuum. They're coming, being powered by, by fearful thinking of, it's never going to work. I need to be perfect. You know, all those fearful thoughts, we just need to be aware that it's powered by thought. It's not the reality of your situation. Sometimes it can be. Sometimes there is something around, uh, you know, if you're going to be bungee jumping, 
or, or something's, you know, jumping off a plane and doing, that's an adrenaline fear. But all the other fears that we have that generally stop us from taking the next stage in our lives are the fears that possibly, I always call it a playlist. Like we have a musical playlist for when we go to do our exercise, when we go and, and, and write. Uh, anyway, I do. We also have a musical playlist, a, a, a thinking playlist when we're about to embark on something. And those fearful thoughts come back in that playlist of it's never going to work. It has to be perfect. I'm never going to make it. I'm going to lose everything. That's what happens. And we attach to it and we attribute meaning to it and we make it true. And then we invite it in and we invite it to stay the night. We make it a cup of tea and it comes in and it builds and it builds and it builds. If we were really, when we feel fear, we're really to write down what thinking is behind it. I would imagine half of that is untrue. So I, I think I, I think I said to you as well. I mean, like anxiety and fear is a form of anxiety. I, I guess it's not necessarily a bad thing or a wrong thing to feel. It's a natural thing, and yet I think today we almost put anxiety and fear of doing things up on a pedestal and say, "Oh, I can't do that because you know, for the for whatever reason, you know, fill in fill in the blank." Yes, what I always say to my clients is obviously. Fearful feelings come from fearful thinking. So I always say to my clients, who would you be without that thought? If that thought, that fearful thought wasn't there, let's just invite possibility, who would you become? And then we enter the creative world of, of, of possibility. Well, I would do this, I would do that. And then they begin to imagine, actually, it is only a thought. And we can still feel fear and we can still do it. Like I felt fear all the way through this past year as my book was about to be published. I had huge amounts of self-doubt, huge amounts of anxiety about what it was going to be like to release my first book. Were people going to like it? Were people, yeah, I had a lot of thinking about it, but I still continued. I still plodded on. And that's the difference between people saying, well, I'm scared. There must be something wrong with what I'm about to do. I better stop. And the fear is so much greater than the than the reality yes there's no resemblance to the reality because most people are so wrapped up in their own world yes they, they don't give a stuff about with due respect to your wonderful book absolutely they don't give a stuff about you and your book or me and my podcast they they want they want to have a happy life and as you say get on with their own life exactly and i'm glad you say that because i think that sometimes we need to get over ourselves sometimes when the love we have for what we're about to create is bigger then the fear we have of what will happen if things don't work out, we're just going to set off and do it because love and fear can't sit in the same space. One has to leave. So if you want to eliminate fear a little bit, you have to bring love into the equation. When I first started public speaking, I, I mean, I love being on stage, but when I first started, I was, I was a little, I was pretty anxious. And what I started to do to shift that fear to one side was I would look at the audience, I would make eye contact with them, and I would just love them. I know it sounds really like kind of a little bit hokey pokey, but I started to like I I like I love I love them. I like I I want to impact you so much that I love you so much. I want to. So you don't overt. It's not something you overtly say to them necessarily. No, no, no. It's just you I give, just you breathe just them telling in. yourself. Yeah, I love I love 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 because love and fear can't be in the same space. And what I found was that fear was came in and out, but it didn't grip me. And it's okay to feel fear. Your body's just coming into a new space. It's scared. That's okay. You can 
interact with fear. You can have a relationship with it instead of pushing it away. Go away. I can't have you. Like it's not right. Just relate to it. Just say, look right now, this is what I need to be doing. And you need to step out of the equation for now. So relate to it. Fear and anxiety, as we said, are a natural feeling. And it goes back to Neanderthal man, you know, chucking spears and going to get dinner and being worried there's a lion coming out the bushes about to kill you. So the the feelings of fear is absolutely natural. I'm, I'm guessing it's only when fear takes over your life that you can't you live a normal life. It's when, when you take fear seriously, when you take the fearful thoughts seriously, you attach to them and then it paralyzes you. Whereas, or if you try and resist it, because what you try and resist, it persists rather than, than relating to it. I always say to my clients, you know, imagine fear was a friend, even an annoying neighbor sometimes. Just talk to it. And once they do that, they say to me, my God, it doesn't grip me anymore. Yes, sometimes I'm still scared, but I'm no longer paralyzed by it. That's the difference. You don't need to never be scared. Of course you're going to be scared. It's very normal, as you say. It's a natural state of being as well. Because you mentioned in the book you had a pretty horrendous experience when you were carjacked. I can't remember what country you were yeah. in at the time. Yeah. Where, where were you when this happened? I was here. You were here I was in, in London. Country? Oh, crikey. I was in London, in Golders Green, actually. Uh, <laughs> That must have been absolutely terrifying. I mean, that was genuine fear, I would imagine. But I didn't feel. But I, you didn't feel it until afterwards. It's almost like the post-traumatic yeah. stress. But so, just talk us through what what happened briefly. Well, it. I was in the car in Golders Green, and um, my husband, ex-husband at the moment, but he stepped out of the car to get something from one of the chemists, and as he did, so obviously he left the, the key in the ignition, and somebody else walked in, and he set off with my car with me inside it. But but what's incredible is what, when we are overthinking doesn't rear its ugly head. You know, fears don't rear it, its ugly head when we are in the middle of a hijack, a bomb threat, even a, a carjack. We just, something else steps in. We just kind of know what to do. I mean, that's, that's quite poignant given the what's happened. You know, we've had a couple of anniversaries of terrorist activities or the Grenfell fire and all these things. And you see all these acts of great courage with people running to the fire running to the uh, the terrorists you know and scaring them off with chairs and beer bottles and all that sort of stuff so that's people's real natural yes. first reaction so a year ago those people if somebody would have said to them would you be doing this they would say no way i would never do this but a year later they they just set off and do it because it doesn't matter anymore because again their desire to help is stronger than entertaining fear well you also talk about in your book, um, you, you give some solutions to, um, or some things to do. They're not necessarily solutions, but there's some things I think that can improve one's one's life when one is looking for a change in direction. And we've, we've spoken about some of them, you know, being more community-minded, you know, mixing with good people, um, overcoming fear and those sort of things. But also you talk about practical things you can do, like, for example, journaling and meditating and having morning practices, morning routines, I should say. We must read the same books or go to the same <laughs> same seminars because I do a, I do a lot, a lot of this stuff, I'm pleased yes. to say. I'm not good at all of it because a lot of it, you know, you have to make a habit of it. And habit forming is another problem to overcome. You've got to take out bad habits and create new habits. So how does one start to build some of these good practices into your life? Well, it's interesting because I had a, a client the other day who said to me, Michelle, I cannot sit down and meditate. It's impossible for me. So I said to her, well, just 
just meditate on the way to work. Like just as you're walking, just be present, turn off your phone, just be present to what's going on around you. So we don't need to suddenly make this like uh, something really hard and oh my God, now I've got to remember to do these four things before I set off in the morning. It just has to serve you. If you feel meditating or creating more presence in your life would really serve you, then turn off your phone and be more present on your walk to work or your drive to work. Or, you know, if you feel that being more creative about your life would serve you, then start being more intentional in the morning. You know, each one of us is going to find something else that really serves us. I find silence in the morning quite helpful for maybe like even 15 minutes of silence. Um, my kids are now older, so I don't have that issue anymore that they might disturb me. So a bit of silence. I read a couple of chapters of a book. It all takes 15 minutes tops, but it sets off your day in such a different way. And you're more, again, you you know, people always say, well, five-year plans, let's dream big. Just start really small with today, now. What can I do now? I actually found when I started to do those five-year plans years ago that after a week or a month or two, you start to think, yeah, well, you're no closer to building your big, you know, hairy goal, whatever it's called, your big five-year plan than you were. You may have made small steps towards it, but the big five-year plan seems so far away. If anything, that just generates more anxiety and stress and that you're, that you're nowhere near doing what you, what you wanted to do in the first place. So small baby steps that you can do on an incremental daily basis, I find far better. Really, really far. I mean, when I wrote my book, I wrote it one hour a day. Mm. Last year in the month of April, 8 to 9 a.m. each day for an hour, I sat with no distractions, no phone, and no nothing else getting in the way, and I wrote my book. And you just determined that in that hour, you were going to write Come What May. Yeah. A couple of, uh, maybe about seven, eight months ago, I decided to do the same with creating some speaking engagements because I thought to myself, actually, I haven't done that many speaking engagements for the for a while. I need to create that. And I spent two weeks half an hour each day, like reaching out to event organizers, companies, businesses. Within two weeks, in fact, in the past few months, I've had quadruple the amount of speaking events that I've had in the past two years. And that's through a focus of half hour a day, calling people, being proactive, but you have to be proactive. You have to be part of it. You you know, it's like somebody said to me something a couple, uh, I think it was a couple of years ago, which I think really changed everything. And it was like, Michelle, no one is coming. No one is coming. You want something, you've got to go out and create it. And I think for myself, bringing out my kids by myself for most of it, and being a single parent, I've had to be proactive. I've had most of the things that I've done, I've done myself. And so it's possible, totally possible. Yeah. And that's, I think, what you call choose yourself in the book. Yes. And it's interesting. I don't know where you got that expression from, but there's. There's a very good uh, American podcaster yes. called James Altucher. James Altucher. I got it from him. He, got, I love he him. wrote the book, Choose Yourself. Yes, I got it from him. And he, and as you picked up, I mean, it's absolutely, no one is going to determine your life for you apart from yourself. If you want something, you've got to make steps to go and get it. You've got to, and you've got to step into it. You've got to own it. And you've got to claim it, that this is what you're standing for. And, and then you get better at it. You know, you really hone your craft, you get better at it, but you have to stake a claim. And I think the next chapter was about Venice. I think it was about staking a claim and saying, look, this is what I stand for. This is what I can bring to the world. And however small, it doesn't have to be huge. And I think the small steps is critical because 
you can build step by step by step will create a habit and the habit then creates part of your persona if you like and then you can see gradual improvement and then before you know it a good habit has replaced a bad habit and I think one of the key things you mention in the book apart from meditation which I I'm pleased to say I I now do meditation since the beginning of the year. I now do TM Transcendental Meditation, morning and afternoon, or morning and evening, 20 minutes. Really easy. So if you want to tell your uh, you want to tell your friend about Transcendental Meditation, I can put it in the right direction. That's a really simple, easy one to do. And journaling is fantastic morning and evening. And in the, in the journal, just say some of the things you plan on doing the next morning and in the evening, yeah, you can look yeah. back and just check yourself off that you've done. They're not big tasks, just little tasks on the journey to what you want to achieve in that week, for example. Definitely. I think I think we underestimate the power of, of sort of taking a small step because everything is so grandiose at the moment on social media. People may talking about making seven, eight figure incomes, multiple sets of incomes, people doing huge things. And we think we kind of have to match up to that or we have to do these big game things. We don't have to. We can make our impact in our own way however small, and it can start with half an hour or an hour of focused time towards what you want to create in your life. And I hate this idea of having to aspire to, you know, six, seven, eight, nine figure multiple incomes equals happiness. It it, it doesn't. And you see every single month of the year, some well-known celebrity who unfortunately has taken their own life because they're so darn miserable or depressed with, with their life. It doesn't matter the success, the money in the bank, you know, the public exposure they've got. It's It doesn't matter. What matters is, as you say here, stop seeking and start living. Look inside yourself. It doesn't matter what you've got externally. Yeah, absolutely. Start living. Really start living. Start looking at what's around you, you know, breathing deeply. People breathe very, very short breaths and they're, they're, yeah. breathe deeply talk deeply to people when you connect with them, whether it's in a restaurant, spend time speaking to people, to your kids, to your partner, just connect on a deeper level because everything feels a little surface level at the moment. And and people would get more of a concentrated version of who we are. Well, we could no doubt, and I certainly could maybe off mic, sit down and talk with you for many, many more hours about uh, life, the universe, and uh, improving ourselves because it's it's a topic that's that's dear to my heart. Yeah, uh, from a from my own personal growth, but for you know for for people around me, you know, family who've not been well, and you know, I just find it a fascinating topic, and I love the work that you do. Thank you. I think your book is is a is a wonderful book because it covers a very intense subject matter, but in a very simple easy way it's a very digestible way you could read it uh, you know i read i've read it a couple of times now because it's, it's that sort of book you can just pick up and you can read it you can dive in pretty much anyway i don't think you have to read it from front no, to no, back no. and absolutely and everybody's giving me the same feedback because i work with a lot of overthinkers a lot of very busy professionals and i wanted to create something that they could just sit back read as if they're reading a novel and just still get an insight out of it and what I like is not prescriptive as well. It's not saying you've got to do this, 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 and this. It gives you some ideas from your own life experiences and, you know, your own career path, which which is great. So, as I say, the book is called Look Inside, Stop Seeking and Start Living. It's by Michelle Attias. I hope I pronounced that correctly. You have. <laughs> um, you can find it in all good bookshops. You've got it on Kindle or on paperback? I always prefer the paperback because, like you can see here, I've got it marked up and lots of sticky notes all over the place. 
So before we go, Michelle, if you could just maybe tell everybody how they can get hold of you, find out more about you. You know, as you said, you get the book on Amazon. Yep, absolutely. If the listeners, if any anybody has had an insight through our conversation or something came up and they'd like to feed back to me, my email, which I'm sure you'll include on, on this anyway, which be, it's michelleatiascoaching at gmail.com. And that's Michelle with one L-E. Uh, you can always look at my website as well, www.michellatiascoaching.com. I've also got a YouTube channel, so I've got plenty of coaching resources there and videos and of talks that I've got done so you can dive deep into there. And um, yeah, and if you want to connect with me for any other programs that I do, I work with my clients generally from three months uh, to a year on coaching programs, but I've recently created uh, created a coaching accelerator for six weeks and it's short, impactful, affordable. And it's just amazing for people who want to dive deep and quickly because they're busy and they want to get on with their lives. This is a great way to get started. Fantastic. And do you have any sort of talks you've got coming up? Or Yes, I've got a talk next Tuesday, the 26th. Um, I've got, uh, it's called Stop Thinking, Start Doing. Uh, so that's a very popular talk I do for General Assembly. Uh, so if you want to check on the General Assembly website, I do general, I've got another one in, Ju- in July as well, uh, called Lead with Abundance, Not Scarcity Mindset. So I do a lot of talks for them, but definitely connect with me if you want to find out more about what I do when I'm speaking next or go onto my YouTube channel and, and check out some of my resources and you can get started that way. Excellent. And what's your new book going to be about? I don't have a name for it yet, but I spoke to my publisher yesterday about it and it's going to be much of the same, but taking it to the next level. Because remember, I wrote this book about a year ago because the publishing process takes a long time and my writing and my experience and my process has deepened far more since then. So you're refining what you've said here. Refining on a deeper level and bringing in other subject matter. So it's going to be taking it to the next sure. level it doesn't make what you've said here any less relevant no, or, or, no. or up to date but we all totally. grow and, yeah. and, and that's just where it's going well Michelle thank you very much it's been an absolute pleasure thank you for inviting and me and look forward to seeing you again very soon thank you very thank much you.